This is the word of God from Deuteronomy 5.15. Remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out of there with a strong hand and an outstretched arm. That is why the Lord your God has commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Good morning, church. Good to be with you today. And Happy New Year, of course. That's it? (laughs) Happy New Year. Well, it is a Happy New Year, and we have a lot uh, lot of new things to be grateful for. And uh, my name is John Fox. I'm one of the pastors here. I get to preach for you today as we start off a new sermon series. And we have like so many new things, more new things than I could talk about. I'll just mention a few. Uh, We have a newly renovated building, which is wonderful. And you may not have noticed it, but we have doors that you walk through today. That's a new thing. It's really great. We also have a new lead pastor who arrived in town this weekend. Yeah. Is he in the room? I can't see. Reese, are you here? Wave your hand. Hiding right in the middle in the back. All right, good deal. Uh, yeah, I got in on Friday, and then the family yesterday, right? They made it? Made it. Good, all right. So um, lots of new stuff there, and uh, we have a new sermon series. It's a great time of year just to focus on new things, of course. I've been to the gym uh, trying to get that free beanie, you know? And uh, there's lots of people there also competing for that beanie, uh, because it's a new time of year. So lots of new things to be grateful for. And uh, just as we begin, I would like to talk about um, uh, remembrance, because that, that's really a lot of what we're talking about for this series. Uh, for the next four weeks, we're going to talk about remembering from Deuteronomy 5, words of instruction from Moses. And each week will be uh, preached by um, one of the pastors or pastor-adjacent person. So I'm preaching this week. Next week, it's Myung, and then it's going to be Pastor Jason. And to finish out this series, it's going to be Tim Smith, uh, who has been such a huge help and a blessing for us as a church. And then we're going to move into um, uh, another series, which is called Drawing Near. And that is going to be over spiritual disciplines, mainly. And uh, our new pastor, Pastor Reese, will be leading us in that. So... Uh, lots of things to be grateful for here. And um, talking about remembering, this last week on January 1st, 2024, was nine years, the nine-year anniversary of Sound City Bible Church. So glory to God, right? Nine years. And I would also just like to invite any of you who are here as a founding member or leader to stand, if you're here. Anybody at the second service? All right. Praise God for you. Um, There's also original people that stood up at the first service if you're feeling lonely at this one, okay? Uh, You're still out there. Um, And it's a great time to just thank God and praise God for um, what he's done in the past. It's a wonderful thing. Ten years, we're going to have to do something special next year. and, and this is uh, really important for us because to t- tell you a little bit more about this series, speaking of remembering, the plains of Moab, which you may be saying, what is that about? Um, plains of Moab were a place where 
Israel was making their last trek in the 40-year journey before they get into the promised land. It's the last staging ground before they actually get to go and enter in. And so Moses gathers them around and gives them the second rendering of the law, second law, Deuteronomy. That's what it means. And he'll take them, gather them together, and then he'll have some words for them. And all of Deuteronomy is the message. Towards the end of it, he will give a couple of really special messages. Uh, But here's what Pastor Eugene Peterson says about this book and this moment in history. He'll say that Deuteronomy is a sermon, actually a series of sermons. It is the longest sermon in the Bible and maybe the longest sermon ever. Deuteronomy presents Moses standing on the plains of Moab with all Israel assembled before him, preaching. It is his last sermon. When he completes it, he will leave his pulpit on the plains, climb a mountain, and die. And that should be very instructive for us because as we begin this sermon and as we begin this series, what we should recognize is that this word, the whole book, but especially Deuteronomy 5, is very much um, the last words of a dying man who has seen God move, has seen God save, been a part of some of the most amazing things in human history, seen God's providence play out. And he will give this book as a way of telling God's people, don't forget God's goodness. Remember, And so I would like to pray and invite you to pray along with me this morning. Father, as we begin, I just, I ask that your Holy Spirit would come alongside of us and fill in the gaps of our knowledge, fill in the gaps of our memory where we have not seen, we have not appreciated, we have not been grateful to you as you deserve. And today, as we remember being slaves, God, that you would highlight that for us this week. Pray in your son's name. Amen. So as we begin here, uh, the main point, I believe, that is going on in this part of the text, where each sermon will be about remembering something, that Moses begins in 515, remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. And so today's main point is that grateful people remember where they came from. Grateful people remember where they came from. You've all seen the the movies or or the shows where you always have somebody who starts out uh, virtually poor or or, um, isolated and and they're of of no worth, they're of of no esteem, and then all of a sudden they raise, uh, whether by their own effort or some happenstance, they end up becoming very famous, popular, whatever it is, and they forget everybody who they started out with. It is uh, disdainful, isn't it? And so Moses is going to say, remember that you were slaves in Egypt. So this morning, we're going to have three main things to talk about. First, we'll focus on Israel's slavery. Then we'll focus on mankind's slavery, which are related uh, to Israel's slavery. And then redemptive slavery. So first here, to talk about Israel's slavery, I think it's very helpful just to uh, give a little bit of definition. The Bible uses this word, slavery, or later on in a different way, servant, 
And it's something that trips us up in our modern day uh, because it was often very different for biblical hearers in the original context. So I'd like to give you a little bit of a historian's take on this. Thomas S. Kidd is a phenomenal Christian historian. I encourage you to read any of his stuff. He's, He's really amazing. Here's what he says about this word slavery or the idea, the concept of it. He says, if you consider what Exodus tells us about slavery, there are reasonable signs to suggest that ancient Hebrew slavery was a less totalizing institution than what it became for enslaved people in the 1700s in South Carolina, Jamaica, or Brazil. There was an endpoint to a slave's term of service. For instance, Exodus 21 suggests that slaves would be freed from the Israelites in their seventh year and that people became enslaved for life only by choice. Exodus also shows great sensitivity to the wrong kind of slavery as seen in the ruthless enslavement the Egyptians uh, or the Israelites experienced in Egypt and from which God delivered them. So, What Kidd says here is that um, most of the time the Bible's talking about slavery, it's it's a different context, it's a different way of thinking than we currently think about it. So there's some clarification that's worth to be had. But especially in relation to Egyptian slavery of Israel, it's something that's a little bit easier to relate with for us. Because unlike uh, Roman slavery, for instance, this is not class-based This is very much race-based. Very much race-based. So this morning, what was this Egyptian slavery like for the Israelites? And I just want to read you uh, some long excerpts here to help get you, help get me, help get all of us in the mindset of what this slavery would have been like to live in. Exodus 1, 13 to 14. Enslavement. After Joseph had passed away, who ruled Egypt, his, his, uh, his reputation and his kin had uh, fallen out of memory. A new king arose, and this is what happened. They, the Egyptians, worked the Israelites ruthlessly and made their lives bitter with difficult labor in brick and mortar and in all kinds of field work. They ruthlessly imposed all this work on them. More than that, things got worse in Exodus 1, 16, infanticide. When you help the Hebrew women give birth, observe them as they deliver. If the child is a son, kill him. But if it's a daughter, she may live. I think by any measuring stick, we would call that oppression. In Exodus 1.11, Moses kills the Egyptian. Years later, after Moses had grown up, he went out to his own people and observed their forced labor. He saw an Egyptian striking a Hebrew, one of his people. So we have physical violence. Exodus 1.23.25, there's prayers for this deliverance that are needed. After a long time, the kingdom the uh, king of Egypt died, the Israelites groaned because of their difficult labor and they cried out and their cry for help, um, their, 
cry for help because of difficult labor ascended to God. God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God saw the Israelites, and God knew. I love those verses in the Bible. Very simple, God knew, or God saw. So there is some major injustice, we would say, going on. Exodus 2, 7 and 8. Moses comes to the burning bush. Then the Lord said, I have observed the misery of my people in Egypt and have heard them crying out because of their oppressors. I know about their sufferings and I have come down to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them from that land to a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. So this This has reached a divine level now, hasn't it? The oppression. God sees it, and he's going to do something about it. Exodus 5, 6 to 8. And Moses' first appearance to Pharaoh, after he talks with him, we read, That day Pharaoh commanded the overseers of the people, as well as their foremen, Don't continue to supply the people with straw for making bricks, as before. They must go and gather straw for... For themselves, but require the same quota of bricks from them as they were making before. Do not reduce it. Cold, iron handed. The Israelites are in a situation that's getting worse and worse in slavery. Exodus 5 uh, or Exodus 14 Pharaoh tries to murder the Israelites after all the plagues. And they're released. Then they kind of come to themselves and they say, what have we done? Verse 10, 14, chapter 14. As Pharaoh approached the Israelites, he, um, the Israelites looked up and there were the Egyptians coming after them. The Israelites were terrified and cried out to the Lord for help. The plan being to murder every single Israelite in the world at one time. So when we look at all these things, and there's more, you can just go read Exodus for fun if you want, Um, you start to get a sense of the oppression, of the enslavement that the Israelites are under. This is bleak. They are without hope. They are without power in this situation. They can't do anything about it. They say something, they get struck down. They object, they're disciplined. Maybe their lands are taken, or they face physical punishment. This is slavery. Forced to do other people's work, they have no choice, and they get no reward. This is a context of slavery, and this is the context that Israel came out of. In the most dramatic moment in the Old Testament, it's the moment that all the psalmists and so many other writers look back to God leads his people out from the Red Sea. He prevents the Egyptians from overcoming them with a cloud, parts the sea, takes them out, saves them, literally saves them, and then destroys the Egyptian army. This is the ultimate moment of salvation in the Old Testament. It's what everybody will point back to, to say God delivered his people. And it was something I'm sure that you wouldn't forget, but it's still not something that had the power to change. 
In Exodus 12, when we uh, read about Israel wandering in the wilderness, we read this. Uh, Exodus 16, 2 to 3. The entire Israelite community grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The Israelites said to them, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt when we sat by pots of meat and ate all the bread we wanted. Instead, you brought us into this wilderness to make this whole assembly die of hunger. Do you start to get a sense of the ingratitude happening? They are, they are upset that they don't have the food that they want. Now, I'm not saying starvation is easy. I'm not. And I'm not saying that it's, uh, you, you can't get hangry if you don't have food. I think we all know that. We all experience that. This is different, though. This is totally different. The heart level of ingratitude is so immense that they say, you know what? It was better for me. When I was beaten, when I had my stuff taken, when I had no voice, when I was oppressed day and night, when I had to work hard with no break, with no water, with no food, that was better because I had bread. Do you see the forgetfulness going on? Not only that, in Numbers 11, After getting the food that they wanted, God miraculously provided manna, spiritual food, as the New Testament writers will talk about. So they get the food they wanted. And then, Numbers 11, now the people began to complain openly before the Lord about hardship. When the Lord heard, his anger burned, and the fire of the Lord blazed among them and consumed the outskirts of the camp. Then the people cried out to Moses and He prayed to the Lord, and the fire died down. The riffraff among them had a strong craving for other food. The Israelites wept again and said, Who will feed us meat? We remember the free fish we ate in Egypt, along with the cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, and garlic. But now our appetite is gone, and there's nothing to look at but this manna. I'm sure that there was some desire for other food that was not bad. In fact, God has promised, hasn't he? You're going into this land flowing with milk and honey. You're tired of manna? There's there's going to be way more stuff for you just on the other side here. But the ingratitude, the disdain even, for God and his provision had risen up to a height that caused them to forget God's previous salvation. This is an example for us. Put bluntly, Israel failed hard. Despite God's care and deliverance at their lowest point, they forgot what God had done. Moreover, they treated God's provision disdainfully and started daydreaming about the filth that they used to live in. Do you see something wrong here? In just a little bit of understanding of the oppression and enslavement that they had, now they say, you know what? Do you remember? We had the leeks, we had the garlic, we had all this stuff. Yeah, but did you forget what it came with? And so all through the Old Testament, this will be somewhat of a case study. 
where Israel, God's people, they failed. They failed hard because they said, even though God has saved us, even though he has done this, these wonderful things for us, wasn't it better back in slavery? And that is Israel's slavery. But the Old Testament writers, and very clearly in the New Testament, will take this example to say there's a bigger problem going on. I think it's crystal clear to us, if we're reading, to say there is a bigger problem going on. I mean, what else could you have? What else could you do? This is, you're at the worst point of any human in history, and then God saves you from it, and you say, I want to go back there. There's something really jacked up in the human heart, and that is our second point. That this is not just Israel's slavery. This is mankind's slavery. This is mankind's slavery. And this is how the uh, New Testament writers talk about it. In Hebrews 3, we read this, talking of this situation in the Old Testament. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested me, tried me, and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked to anger with that generation and said, they always go astray in their hearts. They have not known my ways. As it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart as in the rebellion. For who heard and rebelled? Wasn't it all who came out of Egypt under Moses with whom was God angry for 40 years? Wasn't it with those who sinned and whose bodies fell in the wilderness? You see, the author of Hebrews is going to pick up this point to say, let's use the case study. These things are written for our instruction. No, you're not Israel. But there is a spiritual lineage here the writers are going to talk about to say, look at their life. Look at the enslavement that they're under. Yes, there was enslavement under Egypt, but there is a far greater enslavement that every human being in history has ever had on their back, and that is sin. Slaves to it, controlled by it, unable to do anything else except sin. And so the biblical writers will give us a metaphor. I want to be very clear here. I am not saying that this is allegory. There is one time the word allegory is used in the Bible, and that's in Galatians when Paul is using it in a special way. So hermeneutically, when we study the scriptures, we don't look at it and say, well, it's all allegory. No, there's one time very clearly says it's allegory. This is very much a metaphor for us to say this is what it's like. This is what enslavement to sin is like. It's like being oppressed. It's like you have no choice. It's like you do whatever you're told to do. This is enslavement to sin. And Paul talks about it this way as well. In 1 Corinthians 10, talking to the Corinthians about their sinful nature. Yes, they've been saved. Yes, they placed their faith in Jesus. Yes, they're new creations. He'll talk a lot about that. But at the same time, he says this. Now, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors, spiritual, our ancestors were all under the cloud, all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food 
and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not the spiritual, God was not pleased with most of them since they were struck down in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us so that we will not desire evil things as they did. And don't grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroyer. These things happened to them as examples and they were written for our instruction on whom the ends of the ages have come. So believer in Jesus today, 2024, sitting in this seat in Sound City Bible Church. The Exodus story was an example for you. Isn't that amazing? All the toil and the suffering, the gospel writers will also talk about this. These are examples for us. We're to see this metaphor and to say, that's what sin is like. Life outside of Christ. Life before Christ. Life before being in his service, before being under him. And so this morning, I want to ask you, do you remember what it's like if you are a believer in Jesus, if you've put your faith in him? Do you remember what it's like B.C., before Christ? Or have you forgotten? I was very convicted. I am very convicted. Um, with this sermon and this passage and Moses' Moses's instruction, do not forget you were slaves in Egypt. If you forget, if I forget, if we forget what enslavement to sin was like, you had no choice. You had desires. Maybe you modified your morals a little bit. Maybe you did things in secret and you didn't have a guilty conscience. Whatever it was, what, whatever it was, you're a slave, a slave to it. And so Paul says, you too, you need to remember, don't harden your heart in the day of rebellion. Whether it's back then or now, we see that God calls us to remember what it's like to be a slave to sin. And so this morning, do you remember? As Paul talks about in Ephesians 2, do you remember what it's like to be enslaved under the prince of the power of the air who rules all disobedient people? Or... Are you like David in Psalm 116? It says, the Lord heard my cry for help, heard my mercy, uh, heard my call and gave me mercy. The ropes of death were entangled around me. I was going down to Sheol to death and he saved me. Do you remember what it's like? So there's an enslavement for Israel, but we see this is metaphoric also for all of humanity to address this problem where God says they always go astray in their hearts. For new creatures, we can actually not do that with a new heart. And here's where I want to focus on at the end here, redemptive slavery. It may seem like an oxymoron to you putting them together, redemptive slavery. 
But this is exactly what Jesus does. In Matthew 20, 28, Jesus comes and he says something that's um, easily recognizable for most people, even today, to say this is a good thing. A couple of the disciples, soon to be apostles, they get together and they say, hey, we need the inside track, don't we? Yes, we do. Okay. Um, who, where do you want to sit? You want to sit on the left or the right? The right or the left? I don't know. Okay, just the two. So they go to Jesus and they say, James and John, hey, Jesus, when you know, you're enthroned and Messiah ruling over everything, can you give us those seats? The other disciples heard about it and, and what do you think that they did, <laughs> right? Um, uh, Jesus says, nope, call everybody together. We talk about this. He says, the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So he says, so you too. Now, Jesus, when he says this, is going to use a word called uh, servant. In Greek, it is diakonos. It is deacon, the word that we get deacon from, where uh, we see the whole office of deacons, uh, deaconship in the um, in the New Testament, where Acts begins, and then later on in the epistles, we see this is an official office. And we should recognize it that way. Why? Because Jesus institutes it. He says, I am the lead deacon. I am the first deacon. I came to serve you. And this is something that in secular language and books and, and everything else, people love, right? They love it when the CEO steps down and he goes down to the mail room and he's He's sorting the mail and he's running around on a cart. We look at that. So many people say, that's great, right? Boost the morale. That is not what the Bible's talking about. It is way more than that. When Jesus say, says that he came to be served, not to be served, but to serve, he is using the word deacon. I came to bust tables. I came to do the things nobody wants to do. And so on his last night, what does he do? He gets down, takes a towel, wraps it around his waist, starts washing the disciples' feet. It blows their mind. They don't have a paradigm for it. Of course, Peter's statement, Lord, I'm I'm a sinful man. You can't do this to me. Let me wash your feet. But Jesus serves. Now, that's something I think we can recognize with in our culture even. We say, wow, the condescension, you know. I wouldn't. The, the king lowering himself. We have some recognition of that. And there's certainly even more. The creator of creation serving his creation. We have some frame of reference for that. But there's another word in the New Testament, sometimes translated servant, most of the time because slave is just a hard word for us to understand. But doulos is the second word. And it means, it's translated often, slave. This is somebody who, who doesn't have a choice. This is someone who's really more like Israel in Egypt. And here's the amazing thing that Paul says about Jesus in Philippians 2. He says, even though being in the form of God, he did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped to be held onto. Instead, verse 7, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a doulos, of a slave, taking on the likeness of man or humanity. You see, 
The amazing thing about the gospel is that when Jesus came, lived, died, rose again. There's so many things that we could talk about, but a key thing for Paul, a key thing for first century Christians is that they're seeing Jesus and they say, this dude isn't just serving people. He became a slave. He became the worst. Now, we have to be very careful theologically because we're not saying, and Paul doesn't say, that he became a, a slave, meaning he took on sin. He, he uh, was a sinner. He says, by assuming the form of a slave. Let me tell you what that means. That means that Jesus can fully recognize with any temptation that you have as a believer in Jesus, fully recognized with it. But he didn't sin. Not only just sin and temptation, Jesus can fully recognize with his people who are under any form of abuse or enslavement or punishment. Fully recognize with them. That is totally different than busting tables, isn't it? Totally different. It's more than just doing something nice for somebody else, some humanitarian aid. No one has ever stood in solidarity with anyone else like Jesus. He says, that's the situation you're in. That's, that's what I'll become. That's the situation that I will be in. I will take on flesh. I will come. I will empty myself. And I will be right there with you shoulder to shoulder. I know exactly what it's like to be human because I'm human. So when we look at Israel, we look at our problem, and we look at redemption, this is slavery redeemed. The creator God getting down to be with his creation, taking on their sickness, their pain, and their difficulty. Jesus is the one to suffer with his servants. This is the kind of thing that will change your heart. Certainly it did for the apostles. It's not all the power. It's not, it's not the recognition. It's why so many people are around Jesus in the gospels. But Jesus, rather, is, is the thing that transforms people is this recognition that he came from me. He died from me. He rose from me. This morning, if you're someone here who has never put your faith in Christ, see him. See him. The man who came to be a slave, beaten. What is Jesus doing taking the cross? It's thrown on him like a slave, carrying it. Blood, sweat, and tears. Subjugated to punishment to rule, to unjust punishment. Jesus is very much taking on slavery for us. So this morning, just a few things to close here. When you see this servant-slave-like king take on your burdens, forced or earned, doesn't that make you want to be with him? Doesn't that make you want to be around him? to turn from sin, to be with him. So I I would say this morning, some takeaways. Recall to mind, in prayer, sinful behaviors God's brought you out of. Now, you're not perfect. And oftentimes, in the Christian life, it feels like one step forward, two steps back. 
But Jesus is the one who's changing you. And he will see it to completion. He will have a pure bride. He will have a mature church. So recall to mind areas of your life. Again, do you remember what it's like before Christ? Being ruled by sin? Second journal about it. Take some time to think about it and consider sharing it with a friend. It's, it's so easy to, to take these parts of our life that we may be ashamed of or dark and not want to share them. I encourage you, share them. You are a work in progress. So am I. And when we confess, even when we just remember, we give glory to God, which is what I would say for third, just praise him for it. If God has changed you, he deserves the praise, doesn't he? Let's pray. Lord, I pray that we would be people who are grateful, meaning that we remember where we came from. We remember what you have done. We remember, God, your goodness. We remember that we were a slave to sin. Before you came, before you gave us a new heart, before you gave us new affections, before you gave us new desires by the gospel, by the word of truth, Lord, we were far from you. And this morning, I, I pray for everybody here. I pray that if people are here that have not put their faith in you, Lord, this would be the day. For the, those of us who have, Lord, I pray that you would just bring it fresh to our eyes. We forget so easily just like ancient Israel, longing for Egypt. We forget the oppression. We forget the difficulty, the fear, the shame. Lord, would you give us life in you and cause us to remember your goodness. Ask in your son's name. Amen.